Hello survivalists, this is The Crux, True Survival Stories, and I'm your host Casey McIntosh, joined by her lovely sister, Tessa King, and today we have a really special guest on the show, Nelson Simone, author of Soul of the Hurricane, The Perfect Storm, and An Accidental Sailor. How are you doing today? Hey, nice to be with you. Nice to be with you too. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for sending us copies of your book. Yeah. I very much enjoyed it. It's very cool to be talking to a true survivor instead of just telling the story. And a true author. Yeah, that <laughs> and narrator. Yeah. <laughs> the whole package. Yes. Well, can you first tell us a little bit about yourself, Nelson? Uh yeah, I live in uh Brooklyn, New York. Um I'm a performer. I came to New York many years ago to uh, to study theater, and so I have a performance background. And I've done a lot of writing and editing over the years uh, as a freelancer, but this is my first book, so I'm very excited. Tell us about your brief sailing experience on the Clearwater prior to boarding the Anna Christina. Well, we're going back to uh, 1991. Uh, so in the summer, uh, of 91, I, I kind of got this bug. I had a friend who'd been sailing and, um, I got interested in it. So I signed up to volunteer on the Clearwater. The Clearwater is a sloop, which is a one masted type of sailing boat, um, that in this case, it goes up and down the Hudson. Back in the day, uh, the sloops were kind of a, the main cargo and uh, uh, passenger uh, vessels that went up and down the Hudson River before the trains came along. And um, Clearwater was created by the well, was created by uh, Pete Seeger. He was instrumental in getting that started. Pete Seeger, the the folk singer and activist. So um, it's really a way of bringing people making people aware of the Hudson and the efforts to clean it up. And it's this really cool ship. And so I spent one week on it volunteering and we would go up and down the Hudson and we would pick up uh, school children and passengers, and teach them about the river and stewardship of, uh, you know, of the waterways. And we would sing sea shanties and pretend we were sailors basically. <laughs> And so that was kind of the extent of my experience before I stumbled into this other thing with uh, with this tall ship, the Anna Christina. Well, the Anna Christina is certainly a special boat. Would you mind telling us some information, a little bit of the backstory about the boat and the rebuild? I know that's a big question, but just yeah, in as good um, of a summary you can give us. <laughs> Sure, sure. Uh, Anna Christina is, at the time, it was the oldest continuously sailing vessel in the world. It was a, a schooner, uh, which it means it was a two-masted ship, a very fast, uh, it was about 100 feet long, uh, from Norway. So it was built in Norway in the 1800s, and uh, it was rebuilt by Norman Baker and his family uh, in the 1980s. Now, Norman had this whole amazing backstory and history himself. He was an adventurer, an explorer. Um, he sailed with the explorer Thor Heyerdahl on the Ra expeditions. And uh, I'll leave it to people to look those up. These were expeditions where um, 
they built these boats made out of reeds, basically, and sailed across the Atlantic because uh, Herdal had a, a theory that people had sailed, you know, long before sailing ships uh, came into being, that people had sailed across the Atlantic because he saw so many similarities before, between the the ancient civilizations of a place like Egypt and the, the Americas. He said that couldn't have been a coincidence. So Norman Baker was actually his navigator on those adventures. And if people have a chance, there's a documentary made about it. There's a, uh, a wonderful book about the Ra expeditions. So Norman, his dream always had been to sail around the world. And he married a woman who was also excited about that. They had three kids. And so that was the goal. And they were just looking for the, the vessel to, to take them. And they found this ship in um, Tortola in, um, uh, in uh, the British. Uh, uh, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> we can edit okay, anything out that we need to. So don't worry about okay. it. It's a beautiful thing. So they, they, they uh, okay, so I'll start from, uh, they found the ship in Tortola, which is part of the British Virgin Islands, uh, in 1982. And um, basically they got duped because it was in much worse shape than, than the owner told them it was. He told them it was, you know, three months from being ready to sail. And... Um, they spent three months and they were nowhere near ready. They spent another three months. Basically, they ended up spending four years rebuilding the ship. Uh, at first, it was Norman, his wife, Marianne, and their three, um, you know, teenage and young adult kids. And um, they just, they sank everything into this ship. You know, they, they sold their house. They had, they sold everything. They had no money left, but they finished this ship and it was in pristine, beautiful condition. And uh, they started the trip around the world and they got 10 miles before the engine gave out. And that kind of ended that, you know. And so what they ended up doing by the, fin the, by the time they finally repaired the engine, they sailed her back to uh, New York in time in 1986 in time for the uh, uh, op sale 86, which was the, the anniversary of the, uh, uh, the Statue of Liberty. So it was a big tall ship, uh, extravaganza and all these amazing tall ships. So they sailed her back to New York and they ended up, uh, uh, sailing up and down the coast and they used it for training people and, and, uh, training sea cadets, and taking people out and just gave this ship a whole nother life. And, um, created a community around her, like hundreds of people fell in love with the ship. You just couldn't not fall in love with his ship. It was this amazing vision, you know. And um, so they did that for five years. And in 1991, they had an opportunity to try again. And so the idea was that they were going to get a crew, sail the ship to Bermuda. Um, and they had charted different expeditions, scientific expeditions and, and uh, um, different charters uh, to earn money to keep the ship going and to, to raise money for what would eventually be the, their circumnavigation. And so um, Norman hired this guy, Joey Gelband. It was the first time that the ship was going out without Norman because he was so busy raising money and giving speeches and all that stuff. 
And so he got Joey and they needed a crew and they started calling up all the experienced crew members they knew and everyone was busy. Nobody could do it. And so they kind of cobbled together a, uh, a crew of some experience, a lot of inexperienced people. And uh, I kind of got sucked in. I knew someone who knew the bakers and, you know, they, I went, basically went to see Norman give a, a lecture on his uh, reed boat expeditions at the Museum of Natural History in New York. And um, his wife invited all of us. He, she said, we're sailing to Bermuda. She was just that kind of person. She said, everybody come along, you know. And my friend said yes. One of them said no. And I just couldn't say no. I don't know why. I, I just... I knew I was supposed to be excited <laughs> to go. I didn't really want to go, but I found myself saying yes. And that's how I kind of got sucked into the thing in the first place. You're answering all of our questions just in the same order. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you have, you have the list. He's reading them as um, he goes. Yeah. So you initially had this gut reaction to decline the offer to sail yeah. on the Anna Christina. Where do you think this gut feeling came from and why did you choose to ignore it and decide to go to Bermuda? Oh my God. That's a big question. Um, you know, I have thought of that so, so, so many times over the years, especially as things ended up happening, you know, because the adventure was supposed to be eight days to Bermuda, right? I had a one way ticket home. And that was supposed to be the adventure, but it didn't turn out that way. So I've asked myself, why couldn't I say no? And I think a lot of it for me goes back to my my immigrant roots. I was born in, in Bolivia in South America, and we came to this country when I was three. And, you know, back in those days, it was all about getting along and fitting in and uh, kind of keeping people happy. And so I was very good at that as a young person. I could really tell when I was saying something that that the other person didn't look too happy about, and I could immediately adjust what I was saying. And so I really was good at reading other people. And, um, you know, as I say in the book, I didn't want to go, but I knew I was supposed to want to go. Mm-hmm. And my friends were all so excited, and I just got, I got swept up. You know, and, and so after that, it was all about saving face, basically. Well, and sometimes I think we have to make those decisions that put us into really uncomfortable territory because otherwise you don't grow. You know, maybe that's part of it that kind of fueled your interest is just this is a, this is an opportunity to experience something that you never had before. True, true. And, and I, I, you know, I tell people sometimes that and I don't know if this is exactly true but uh, you know i'm someone who if if you ask me to do nothing like i i tell people if it was my civic duty to not get out of bed um, <laughs> i would be a good citizen because i'm like i'll stay in bed <laughs> but i i often force myself to do things because you're right i think you know i do want to grow and and i know that there are experiences that would be good to have and so it's a way of pushing myself so i think that was part of what i was trying to do and it seems like your friends were so excited too, especially your friend Peter. He seemed to have that go get it, yes man kind of mentality that maybe helped spur you along. Uh, well, yeah. It's funny <laughs> you say that because I felt so bad about being selected because Peter, 
he discovered the ship. He was kind of on this vision quest of his own and uh, he wanted to have adventures and he, you know, he's this guy who wants to swim with the dolphins and, and, you know, and he was an artist and he wanted to make art out of all these experiences. And uh, he is the one who actually found the ship, you know, at first. And he's the one who told me about it. He's the one who got me down to the lecture. And um, I, 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 I honestly, if I could have traded places with him, I, I would have. Um, but they wanted me and, and, you know, they had made their decision. So they, they left him behind and they took me instead. Do they not have, do they not think that they had the boat filled when you were initially invited with your friends? Did they not, not think they had the boat? Uh, the, crew, the, the crew members. So when you arrived, Joey said that they had eight, they had room for one more. Right. And so when right. you were initially invited to be a part of the crew, it was with you and your friends in mind. So did they think they didn't have it filled out yet or? Right. Well, I think that um, you kind of had to know Marianne. Marianne was kind of a, let's invite everyone to the party. You know? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and, and figure it out as we go. So I think she, she really w wanted to invite everyone and she thought that would be totally fine. So I think once Norman got involved, because he was the sailor, mm -hmm. and once we talked to Joey, who was, who was going to be the, the, the captain you know, on that, on that voyage, um, they really said, look, we just need to take as many people as the minimum, which was nine, right? Mm -hmm. Just the people they needed because you don't want people that you're going to have to be taken care of. You know, I was a long shot, you know, uh, I was the least experienced. And so they didn't want a couple of other, you know, chuckleheads along. <laughs> <laughs> I think one was enough. So, so give us um, a brief overview of who all these chuckleheads were on, on this vessel. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was, let's see, there was Joey Galban. Joey was this 27-year-old kid from, uh, well, he grew up in the South. His family was from New York. He grew up in the South. And um, it was his first he had just gotten his license as a captain. He had a lot of experience. He had sailed in the Pacific. He had been through storms. Um, he had sailed on Anna Christina a bunch. I think that Norman kind of considered him, him almost like a, like a son, like they were very close mm -hmm. uh, for him to entrust Anna Christina to him was a big deal. But he was 27 and he, he told me at one point he was so cocky. He was so sure of himself that he felt like, if it was him and, and eight other pairs of hands, he could have done it. That's how he felt. And so he was the one. And he was very confident. He never raised his voice. He was very quiet. He had that kind of confidence. Like he didn't have to yell, you know. So he really reassured us on the, on the trip. Um, the first mate was a young woman named Jen Irving. And she was about, people were really young. Like I was 30 two at the time and I was the second oldest. They were all in their 20s, young 20s, 19. So Jen was probably about 20, 21, and, but she was a very experienced sailor. She was first mate. Uh, the second mate was this guy, Peter Abelman, who was the closest friend of the, um, of the Bakers. And he, um, he had decided that he wanted to go around the world with them. And so he was actually studying to get his 
uh, sailing license and captain's license. So that was one of his goals. And Peter was about 50. And as I say, he was really, really, really close to the family. Uh, he had sailed a lot with them. And so he was kind of their, you know, liaison, let's say, because he was kind of represented the family on the ship. Um, then there was this, this young kid, uh, the appropriately named Damien Sailors. And uh, Damien was uh, 19 at the time, and he was a very cocky, sweet surfer dude from Hawaii. Um, and he had kind of grown up sailing with Joey, like they had sailed out in the Pacific together. And very sweet kids, free spirit, you know, just typical kind of surfer guy. Um Let's see who else. There was uh, a woman, Barbara Trey. So she, Barbara was the second woman other than Jen. And Barbara was going to be, she was an experienced sailor. Um, she knew the bakers from before, but she was going to be the cook. So once we got down to Bermuda and then down, they were going to take her down to the Bahamas. She was going to sail around with them on those uh, charters and, and cook. Um, let's see who else was there. There was this guy. Um, Marty, uh, was a, uh, he was a fairly kind of experienced. He wasn't as experienced as other, other folks, uh, but he was a, a, a chef. And so he was going to be cooking for us also on, on the ship. Um, this guy, John Nusiforo, who had no experience at all, uh, but he made up for it with just, pure enthusiasm and he was he had kind of started volunteering on the ship when they were uh fixing it up for the journey and so he met the uh the bakers and they really liked him so they included him um and then this guy uh the last crew member was langdon schmidt and he was another last minute minute addition like me um Fairly experienced, uh, hadn't been out on, you know, big, big journeys. Like this was going to be what we call, uh, what they call blue water, which means you're out in the open sea. Uh, so he hadn't done any kind of sailing like that. So mixed experience, a lot of enthusiasm, uh, not the crew they wanted, definitely. But they couldn't get that crew, so they they took us. <laughs> <laughs> You get what you get, right? No. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, I think they had a lot of confidence in Joey. And uh, there were only three paid crew members. So it was Joey, uh, Jen, and Damien were like the, the three pros. They were getting paid, and everyone else was a volunteer. And they thought that would be enough. You know, just to, to give you an idea of, a, of another ship that was sailing basically the same route that we did, uh, there was a ship called the Ernestina, which was um, uh, also a schooner, but it was a, uh, a teaching vessel. And they had 35 people on board. Oh my you know, goodness. they had, yeah, they had like, I don't know, 15 professional crew. Uh, you know, they, they had a bunch of, of sailing students. So they had a lot of hands because they went through the storm as well. Um, but they took a different route. They handled it differently, and it went better for them. Uh, so just to give you a contrast, we were pretty slim with nine people. And so tell us what the boat itself was like, and I guess in comparison to this other vessel that was out at the same time you were, were they similarly sized? Yeah, pretty close. I think uh, Ernestina was probably a larger schooner, but uh, they were both 
two-masted vessels. They were both older sailing ships. Um, Ernestina was probably early 20th century. Uh, Anna Christina was, you know, as I said before, from the uh, 1870s from Norway. Um, so I, I think on, on a lot of levels, they were pretty comparable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in some ways, Anna Christina was like a, a nicer vessel, like a prettier vessel and, um, you know, more care had been put into her. And uh, uh, because the, the, the bakers were, were really interested in, in creating a ship that was like in recreating as much of the original ship. So where it wasn't original parts, they um, they got they 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 made parts that were based on original, you know. Uh, so they they wanted it to be very authentic. That's so cool. So tell us about the storm. Tell us about what happened after you got on the Anna Christina. What was your experience from that point? Yeah. Well, okay. So I got on Anna Christina on a Friday. And um, I thought we were ready to go because I got <laughs> I got there early in the day. Um, my first few moments on the ship were, I guess, kind of an omen for me because Joey came over and he greeted me and uh, he gave me, you know, I describe in the book what I remember as being uh, some sticks with some string attached. I'm sure it had some real name, <laughs> but he he told me to do something with it, you know, and I think it was sort of a test to see how well I followed instructions and if I could, you know, do anything. And uh, it was just a disaster. I didn't know what I was doing. I was so scared and I was just, you know, fumbling around. And so I kind of waited until he was out of sight, and then I sort of stashed it somewhere <laughs> and hoped it wasn't too important. Um, so, I, and to this day, I still don't know exactly what it was. Um, so that was that was kind of how, you know, the, the kind of how I got started. Um, and it turns out that uh, it's it's bad luck. Sailors are so superstitious. And so there are all these days and of the week and of the year you're not supposed to sail or you should sail uh, because there's so many superstitions. So for some reason, it's bad luck to sail on a Friday. And so we waited until one minute after midnight <laughs> to set sail. So we left uh, the dock in, in uh, Brooklyn, you know, in the middle of the night on the Friday. And... Um, we had uh, we had set up these watches, which is really the most important job on the ship is uh, uh, kind of being on watch. And so on a watch, there's one person who's at the helm steering. There's another person who is um, at the bow kind of keeping track if there's any other ships or obstacles or things in the water. And the third person is in charge of checking the bilge, which is the the under, you know, like the basement of the ship, so to speak. And you're checking the bilge to make sure that there's no water. You're not taking on water. The things are okay. And uh, every ship, especially old, tall ships, take every ship takes on some water. But you want to make sure that, you know, it's normal. And you just pump that out. There's a small pump. So as I was on that first watch with, um, uh, with Joey and Damien. 
And I remember the, the first moment Joey had me take before I, I was on bilge, but he said, hey, come over here. And he let me take the wheel. And it was just this amazing, you know, we were just moving along. It was very quiet. It was dark. Um, and I could just feel the ship kind of coursing along beneath me. And it was just this really beautiful experience. And so I started calming down. You know, I started feeling like, okay, I can do this. This is going to be kind of cool. And so, uh, uh, so we had our watch. So every watch is either three or four hours long, and you just switch. You're constantly, you know, through the night and then through the day. So I finished my watch at around 4 a.m. and I went to sleep. I woke up, and it was like, uh, from what the experienced sailors told me, it was the most glorious uh, day they had ever been on. I mean, it was sunny, it was beautiful wind. We we ended up you know, unfurling all, we were sailing with full sails. I mean, it was just like a dream. And, uh, you know, uh, Peter Abelman turned to me and he said, you, you sail a lot of crappy days for just one day like this. You know, it's like a dream day of sailing. And um, uh, Marty was making beautiful, like gourmet food and I'm stuffing my face. And <laughs> it feels like a vacation. Thinking, what? What? It feels like a vacation. <laughs> I'm telling you, to me, it's like it's going to be like a pleasure cruise, you know. And I've got my ticket home, and that, to me, this was what the whole thing was going to be like. Little did you know. <laughs> Little did I know. So then, toward the end of that Saturday, um, you know, it started getting—I wouldn't say it got rough, but you know, it got the the, the wind picked up. Um, we started getting reports. Uh, of, of a storm that, uh, off of Bermuda that was still small. And, um, you know, Joey didn't seem to think there was any problem. And so um, so we're sailing along, but by that night, uh, I had gotten really seasick because I shouldn't have eaten so much. Yeah. <laughs> it just kind of crept up on me. And so I never went below deck after that, you know, until things got really bad because I knew if I – went below, I would just lose it. And so I just stayed on deck. Uh, I drank a lot of water, which they tell you to do. And, you know, the breeze coming off the water really helped. And um, kind of sailed through the night. And so the next day, so Sunday, uh, Joey told us that he told us about the storm. uh, But he said, we're adjusting course. And we hadn't put down any sails. And we were still sailing, you know, still sailing beautifully. And and nobody seemed worried. and if anything, they seem kind of excited because, I don't know, I, you know, I've heard a lot of stories from sailors of storms they've sailed through, and those are the best stories. I've never heard a sailor, you know, tell you about the sunny days they've sailed through. They like to brag about the storms. And so once we started sailing into a storm, they got kind of excited and they were jazzed up. And, uh, you know, I went on deck and I was on deck with with Joey and he was at the helm and I was kind of working on one of the gasoline pumps that we used and uh, he just seemed happy and the, the wind was kind of whipping along and you know it just seemed like it was going to be like a very cool experience. How are you feeling at that time? I was you know I was feeling really good because I don't know if it was like the adrenaline or seeing people that excited suddenly I wasn't seasick anymore like I totally got over it um, uh, I, I realized that I hadn't had anything to eat since 
like in 24 hours almost. And so since we weren't sitting down to breakfast anymore, uh, Marty was, was boiling up uh, this beef broth, you know, and you'd have it in a thermos and I was kind of slurping it down. And it's one of those things when you're, you know, kind of in that setting, it was the beefiest, brothiest, most delicious beef broth, right? <laughs> this is amazing broth. I've never tasted it before. I mean, you clearly um, remember it to this day, so it must have been good. I know. It just And so you're just having this sort of kind of amazing, you know, you're just noticing everything, you know, and it was really exciting. Um we, we charted a course to the east. I think we were thinking, okay, we're going to go slightly to the east and we're going to go around the storm. And um, so that went through Sunday. And so Joey had kind of gotten us together and he told us a new plan and uh, everything was going great. So through Sunday, it got worse and worse and worse. And uh, the winds got worse and, uh, you know, the waves. Um and that's when I realized that we were into something serious. And I kept seeing Joey and Peter and Jen, you know, kind of charting the course. Uh, they started looking more and more concerned. And Joey would never, you know, later I, I talked to him and he would never let on. You know, he saw it as his job to keep us all calm and to keep us working. And so he told me later, yeah, I might go around the corner and say, holy smokes, this is, this is it. But then he would come back around and say, okay, we're good. We're good. You know, he was really, um, that's how he saw his job. And he did that beautifully. Like he was really keeping us together because I was looking to him. He was a good leader. I was looking to him to see how I should feel about all of this, you know? And so, um, as, as, uh, 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 Sunday dragged on. We started striking uh, the sails. We started taking down the sails because, you know, as the wind gets harder and harder, you you have to take down more and more sails so that you can keep control of the ship. You know, you're trying to, to, to walk that line between having sails up uh, so that you can keep moving and uh, uh, but not being overwhelmed. And so as the waves got bigger, you know, they started getting, you know, 10, 20, 30 feet at that point. You're going up a wave, you're coming down the other side, um, and you're just trying to keep control of the ship, you know. So I was on um, the watch through Sunday, and um, at a certain point early Monday morning, and I remember sitting on the, on the deck, I was on deck with, with Damien, and it's really whipping at that point. And I'm looking at Damien and that guy, he was, he loved it. He <laughs> loved every minute of it. And the ship is rocking. Try to picture it's rocking back and forth. And this guy, he's bending one leg and then the other and then the other. And then I realized he's, he's not sailing. He's surfing the ship. Like it's as if he's on the biggest surfboard ever. And he is completely happy. He's completely in the moment. He is blissed out, you know. He's in the right and, spot. Um, he is in the spot. And that's when I was seeing the, you know, these waves coming up over the ship. Uh, there'd be moments when we would be lifted by a wave and you get to the crest of the wave and your breath, you're just like, <gasps> breath gets caught in your chest in that moment before you drop down again. And then you come down again. And you're going up again, you know, and you're just trying to stay in that moment, you know. I can't even and imagine. It was, just, 
at a certain point, we ran a, a kind of a safety line around the perimeter of the ship because we were afraid of people getting swept off the deck. And so we would wear these harnesses, these vests with a harness. And if you were on deck, you were clipped in the entire time. You oh, know? my goodness. And, uh, uh, and, and, and you're hearing, I would be hearing the ship. Like, you know, the thing about a wooden ship, wooden ships are so, uh, uh, they can survive so much because wood is so malleable and pliable that it'll bend, you know, it'll give. But the, the, we w- I would hear the wood creaking and creaking underneath, and you're just wondering, like, when are you going to reach that point that the ship doesn't have anything left to give, you know? And you never knew when that moment would come. And so that was through Sunday night. We're just, you know, we're, we're, we're still, we're still, supposedly we were still sailing to Bermuda. We had not turned back. But as I looked at, you know, the other people's faces, when I looked at Joey's face, it, I, I started losing my confidence because it didn't, people didn't look like we were going to make it anymore. It, it looked more like we were trying to survive. You know? And it was harder for them to keep that up. That Yeah, because we were getting, you know, we were getting tired. Uh, it was hard for them to keep that brave face, I think. Absolutely. Um, so Monday morning, so now it's Monday, and Joey calls another meeting. You know, and he he gathers us around and uh, he said, we've got to turn around. We're not going to make it. And so we decided to turn the ship around and where we had been sailing kind of east, we started sailing north and west, trying to make it closer to to uh, we were actually trying to sail back to the Chesapeake Bay, which is back uh, in in, uh, you know, the, the it's a bay up by Maryland. So we, we were hoping to outrun the storm and get get up that way. Um, Joey decided that only the most experienced sailors would be on deck. And so the rest of us were left below. Uh, and I'll tell you, once they went up and they kind of put down that hatch, it was like being in a dungeon. You know, it was like the darkness was upon us. And... Uh, uh, that's when the panic started, <laughs> started rising. And, like it's um, all over. <laughs> when you keep, you know, really the thing is not to think too much. You're really trying to focus on a task. You're really trying to focus on what's in front of you. Um, and you're, you're, you're balancing that against what you're seeing. And what we were seeing was that the ship was taking on water. And, there were things that we had done wrong. We didn't batten down the hatches properly. There were vents that were left open. Water was coming in that way. Um, there was just a bunch of stuff that I think because we were under such duress, Joey was trying to keep up with so much and the others as well, that there were things that didn't get done and that so water was coming in. And so by Monday morning, the water was, you know, it was filling. I mean, we had water down below. We were sloshing around at that point up to our ankles in water. And, you know, this beautiful ship that had, uh, you know, a little library and cushions and it was just really beautifully decorated. Everything was floating past us, um, you know, and you're just trying to kind of keep it together. Um, at a certain point, Joey came below deck and another one of us, I was feeling fine, but Langdon, uh, 
had gotten really, really terribly seasick. And so much so that at a certain point, he, he couldn't stand up anymore. And uh, he told me later, that's the moment he realized he wasn't, he was afraid that if, if it came down to it, he wasn't going to be able to save himself. And so he's in one of the berths, just, uh, just moaning and moaning, you know, and the rest of us, I'll tell you, there was nothing, all of our empathy drained away <laughs> because I was afraid, and I think the others were afraid of being infected with that feeling, that feeling of panic and of, of misery that he was in. And we just wanted him to shut up. You know, we just wanted anything, just shut that guy up because we've got a, we've got a job to do, you know? And so Joey was really smart. He took me and, uh, he took me to, to, uh, to the bunk where Langdon was, was lying and we helped him up. And we took him with us. And Joey had had Jerry rigged uh, the pump for the head, you know, for the bathroom. There's a pump you use to pump things out. He rigged it so we could lower that pump into the into the uh, the bilge down below where the water was, and we could pump manually to help. And you know, I'm sure we were pumping next to nothing, but it gave us a place to be. It gave us a focus, and it gave us a way that we could help. And it actually helped Langdon come out of his stupor, you know, and it helped him overcome his panic. And I I remember being with him and, you know, we were were both like, we're both the two sort of lost souls down below deck and wondering how we were going to make it. What were we doing? And, but I realized that, that, when I would start feeling panicked, I, I don't know why, but I decided that it would be a good idea to sing, that it would be good to sing to keep our spirits up. I like that and detail. So, <laughs> and so, and, and I'm a huge, I was, I've always been a huge uh, Bob Dylan fan. And so I just started singing Dylan songs, like all the old stuff, you know, and I got him singing and we're singing, you know, uh, the times they are a changing. There's that line about, you know, but you better start, start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. And we're a little ironic, <laughs> appropriate, really. <laughs> it made us laugh, you know, it made us laugh and cheer and get excited. And, and so we pumped and we sang, you know, like through the night. That's what we did, you know, to kind of keep us going while the rest of them were up there, you know, trying not to get swept off the deck, trying to, keep us sailing like basically what we were trying to do at that point was keep sailing west keep you have to keep the ship pointed toward the waves because if if you don't do that the ship will naturally uh, kind of turn sideways to the wave it just that's the natural motion of it and as soon as you do that you're lost because once a wave broadsides you then you go over and so at that point, we had most of the sails down. I think there may have been one sail left up to help us steer. And they had the engine going. And Joey would go up, 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 up. They'd go up, and they would just gun the engine uh, up the wave. And then they would gun it, you know, to, to, to kind of break the ship going down the waves. It was just this dance of, of playing with the engine and um, – and, and then trying to play the waves. And by this time, you know, these waves are, 
50 feet tall, you know, the, the, the winds are, are, are gusting to 100 miles an hour. And we're just in the thick of it. We're just in the thick of it. And, you know, at a certain point on Monday, Joey called the Coast Guard. At first, he called the Coast Guard and told them that we were, that we were in trouble, but we were sailing and we were trying to make it to the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, but a few hours later, he told them that we were in trouble. And so they sent a, a plane out, a C-130. These were these are these incredible planes that can just sail through hurricanes. You know, they're propeller planes, and they're they're actually the planes that are used to study hurricanes because they'll actually fly into the storm. And they sent um, a C-130 out uh, with pumps because our pumps had failed. Um, I think we found out later because we hadn't primed them properly. And so we were not pumping out the water that we should have been. And that's why we were filling. So this airplane had three super pumps on it. And any one of those pumps would have been enough for us. Okay. So, so it's dark by now. It's, it's Sunday night, it's Monday night. And the, the, they, they radio to Joey, you know, the, the location of the plane, and this plane is flying, try to imagine, it's flying at 100 feet above the water, 150 feet. I mean, it's just, you know, the wind is whipping, and this, this plane is just plowing through the wind. And it's looking for us, and uh, Joey gets Peter out on the bow, you know, hooked in at the bow with a, with a hook, like a big pole with a hook on it. So the hope is that they'll be able to drop you know, parachute down or drop down one of those pumps and he'll be able to hook it and pull it onto the ship. So they radio down and they say, pump coming. Joey relays pump coming to, to Peter and Peter's like, where, where? They had dropped it to a, the wrong ship. There was a trawler two another miles boat. away, <sighs> another boat. So that was one. So they come again. They made 15 passes trying to drop these, uh, these, uh, uh, pumps to us and they had to you know they couldn't fly too low because our mast is 78 feet and it's whipping back and forth right so they they had to figure out a way to get close enough to drop the pump so they dropped the second one and it's right be behind us but of course you can't go backwards so that one's lost and then they finally dropped the third one and it's down, down in front peter puts the hook in the water, grabs the line, and he's pulling, 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 and he almost gets it, but it just, it, he just didn't have the strength to pull it on deck. And so we lost frustrating. The last, <laughs> we lost the last pump, and that was it. And at that point, Joey radioed, and, you know, he had to make the decision, okay, because there's a decision to be made. Can you make it back? Do you have enough? Do you have enough ship left? Do you have enough power left? Are you are you keeping the water enough at bay? You know that you're not filling too much, and it's always a judgment call. You know, and um, I talked to Peter. You know, Peter Abelman later. He's the, the the close friend of the family, and he said to me, if it had been me we probably all would have been lost because there's no way I'm going to leave that ship. There's no way I'm not going to try to make it back. He told me, I think Joey made the right decision because Joey decided to get us rescued. Peter said, I would never have done that. 
you know, and that's on me, he said. It's hard because so it's it, like leaving another person behind almost at that point when there's so much heart in the boat. Absolutely. And I'm telling you, for the for the bakers and the, for the people close to Anna Christina, there's not even an almost about it. It, it really was like another person. It was like a, a beloved child of mm-hmm, theirs, of mm-hmm. another friend, you know. Yeah, they put everything it, into it. Everything, everything. And uh, so Joey radioed and he, he requested a, a rescue. And so um, there's a, a Coast Guard station in Elizabeth City in North Carolina. And so they started getting ready. Um, this, this pilot, uh, um, Lang, Paul Lang, started getting his team ready. And um, the problem was that we were about 350 miles off the coast at that point. And we were beyond the range of the, uh, uh, of the helicopter, the HH-60 helicopter that they had. Uh, it was a state-of-the-art. It was a brand-new helicopter that had just been commissioned. But we were still too far out. But they left. You know, they couldn't wait. And so they, what they did was they started, someone from back in the base started looking for what they call a lily pad. And a lily pad is, can we find something out there where the helicopter can, can land and refuel? Okay. And he found an aircraft carrier that was riding out the storm. The, uh, the USS America was riding out the storm in those waters. And he somehow got them to uh, to okay that the, the the captain of the ship said if if your pilot is crazy enough to try this, uh, I'm crazy enough to help him out. <laughs> so they told him to land. And so the the plan was for uh, two helicopters because each one had a crew of four, and they could each hold six people. Okay, so Paul Lang takes off in his helicopter, a second helicopter is supposed to leave an hour later and follow behind. Uh, The second helicopter started experiencing uh, uh, equipment failures and and all kinds of problems right off the bat. And so they got into the air, but they lost all of their tracking equipment. So they were basically flying blind up there. And so they couldn't help. So basically they got word to Paul that uh, he was it, that he was to go to the ship, take as many of us as he could, uh, and then come back, you know. And so he goes to the he, – he lands on the, on the carrier. Uh, they fuel up again, and then off they go, and they're coming towards us. That's a lot of pressure. You're it was it. huge. <laughs> it's huge. And I'll tell you, when I met this guy, I, I had the, the pleasure of meeting him kind of shortly after they rescued us, um, they they arranged a meeting between us and the crew, which is unusual. He told me that uh, uh, Coast Guard crews never get to meet the people they rescue. So they were really thrilled to get to meet us. Um, so they were they were on their way to us. They were on their way to us. And our job was to keep sailing west to try to reduce the um, – the distance as much as possible, you know. Um, one thing I, I do want to say here, I just want to interject, because people have asked me, what were they thinking? You know, what was Norman thinking? 
Like, why did they make the decision to sail to Bermuda at this particular time? Mm -hmm. You know, didn't they know there there was going to be a storm? And the answer is, this was, you know, it was the end of October, and the 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 sort of uh, sailing knowledge tells you that by the end of October, the hurricane season is over. You know, there's an old saying in the, in the, uh, the uh, North Atlantic, by October, by October, it's over. That's what they all say, you know. And um, so you, you shouldn't have any hurricanes, and it's before the big nor'easters kick up from the north. So you're kind of, it's a window in between those two storm systems. Um, this was, you know, they called it the storm of the century at the time. It was, they called it the perfect storm. And that's why, because there was Hurricane Grace, which is the hurricane that we had sailed into. There was a nor'easter coming from the north. And then there were these huge storms coming off the Great Lakes. So it was this, this uh, coming together of these three storm systems. And the reason it, it's called a perfect storm is it's perfect in the sense that it could not be any worse. It's absolutely as bad as it can be. And so we were in Hurricane Grace at the same time that the Nor'easter was coming down, and that was starting to, to wreak havoc with us as well. So that's what we were trying to get, get away from. If this had happened today... Would the technology be better in terms of predicting weather like this? I don't know. I mean, that's a little bit uh, beyond my own knowledge. I think, you know, I've talked to uh, hurricane specialists, and um, I do think that the the predictive tools that they have have improved quite a bit would it have been enough to stop us sailing like would it have said okay you know i i don't really know it has been 30 years so well, maybe this wouldn't happen although you do hear about ships getting caught even now you know yeah, yeah. predictions um, ultimately are just predictions you know it's like how many times have you seen the weather report it's a 70 percent chance of rain and then it's sunny exactly. all day yeah. <laughs> and are you gonna you know, Sorry, I was just going to say, are you going to, you know, um, hang your hat on anything, any prediction? Right. right. Well, and especially when your crew is expecting bad weather. It's almost expected when you spend that much time on the water or looked forward to. Maybe not to that extent, but. Yeah, no, it's it's actually true. You know, that, that uh, you know, I think the crew probably knew we were going to run into something. Uh, I think it was just much worse uh, than we, than we could have thought. You know, um, it was just and and when you when I think about Norman, like again, let's think about this family. Let's think about this man who had handed off his life's work, his dream. Uh, you know, would he have done that if he thought there was any chance that that it would go this way? I I don't think he would have. But it was a one in a thousand. You know, um, both in terms of the storm coming, the severity, and the types of decisions we made, and the, um, you know, just to be honest, the being, because of the, the severity of the storm, we were underhanded. You know, the Ernestina with a larger crew, 
they had a, an, an engineer who was just in, in charge of the pumps. Uh, and they, they went through some bad storm, but they made it. They made it because they went west immediately, which is the what you usually do, that, that most Atlantic storms start out going west when they come up from the, from, you know, from the south. They'll start out toward the coast, toward the, the Atlantic coast. They'll start out in that direction, and then they'll turn east, you know, 75% of the time. And so the Ernestina's captain, he played the odds because the, the, the storm was tracking westward for a long time before it finally turned. And so he made the right decision by going west immediately. And we didn't. So and that was delayed. the crux. That was the crux is east or west. <laughs> yeah, that was like w the first big decision that we had to make, you know. And so... Um, so at a certain point, so now at this point, it's, it's you know, after midnight, uh, Monday, midnight, and Joey comes below. We've been pumping away down there, and they've been, you know, keeping the ship going. And uh, he comes down, and he says to me, hey, Nelson, it's, it's time to go. And I go to my bunk, and I start packing. And <laughs> he says, no, 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 just you, just your life. You know, I thought I was going to get to pack all my bags and, you know, I don't know, be escorted off the ship. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had to decide what I was going to take. So I took passport, my, my cash money. <laughs> I, took my, 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 uh, I don't know if I took the passport. Uh, I had my cash money. I had a credit card. I kind of weighed my apartment keys, you know, um, no, I didn't take my passport. In fact, I just had, I had the, because that got me into trouble later. I was afraid like, you know, are these keys going to sink me? So I left the key um, and I went above deck. So it was the first time I, I'd been above deck, you know, in probably 12 or 15 hours. And, you know, I'm sure it wasn't like this, but the way I remember it was that it was, there was a stillness. You know, the, the, the helicopter was hovering above us with the light shining down on the deck. Uh, my friends were on the deck. We were all clipped in. And uh, uh, I, just, I, I just felt a stillness to it, you know. And so Joey told us the order. So we're, we're basically standing along the rail waiting to – because the, the helicopter couldn't lift us off the deck of the ship because of the rigging and the masts that were still reeling back and forth, it couldn't get close enough. So each of us had to step up onto a rail, unclip, you know, we had a life vest on, we had a little light and a whistle and we had to jump in the water. And at that point, the helicopter would peel off and go find that person and, uh, hopefully pick them up and then it would come back and it had to do this nine times. So that's how it went. Was somebody still in control of the position of the boat? Because there were still yeah. pretty high waves the whole time, right? Oh yeah. I mean, we were steering. Uh, so there was always someone at the helm, uh, on the engine. So the rest of us, so at this point it was Joey and Damien kind of had those duties and the order was going to be, let's see, it was Langdon first because he'd been sick and then Barbara, then Jennifer, and I was going to be fourth. So Landon gets up on the rail, 
and we're watching Joey go up to him and Joey's talking to him. And I couldn't tell what Langdon was saying, but I heard Joey and I said, he was saying, jump. <laughs> he was telling him, you've got to jump. And I think Langdon was just, he was still weak and he, it was just a lot for him. So finally he unclipped and he disappeared. He went off the, uh, the ship and we lost him. I mean, we didn't realize because, because we were moving at the same speed as the helicopter, you know, kind of relative to each other. It felt like we were just kind of bobbing along. But as soon as he jumped into the water, he disappeared into the darkness, like way behind us, you know, and, and the helicopter disappeared to go find him. And, and then we were just waiting and you know, we were just waiting to, to see if they got him. And it took them a long time. It took them, I think, 15 minutes to get Langdon. And they didn't have, at that point, he only had enough fuel. Like it had to go much more quickly uh, for him to get all nine of us. Because he, at that point, he realized there was not going to be another helicopter. So he, he was wanted to get all of us. And so then Barbara went, uh, then Jennifer and I think it was after Barbara, the, so they had the, the cat, the pilot, the co-pilot, the guy on the winch who was lowering the basket and, uh, and the sea, the, the diver. So this is a guy who's, he's just got a snorkel and fins and he's just diving into the water to help us get into the basket. So he managed to do that twice. And then he came up. And the pilot, Paul Lang, is asking him, are you good to go again? And the, the diver's saying, I'm good, I'm good. But the winch guy looked at him, and basically the, the winch operator is making the call at that point because he's the eyes and ears back there. And he saw that the, the guy was sick. He was completely throwing up, and he was completely sick. And he said, no, he can't go again. So after that, they just lowered the basket and we had to get in by ourselves uh, and then for them to bring us up. So they got through Langdon, Barbara, and uh, Jennifer. <laughs> and then I was fourth. And at that point, I don't know why, but uh, uh, Peter and Marty started arguing with Joey and saying to him that we could save the ship. They said, okay, we've gotten them off. We can save her. Let us try. Crazy. And I'm thinking, could you wait until I get home? <laughs> <laughs> it's my turn. Like, why, do you, why do you, yes, let me take my turn and then you can do whatever <laughs> you want. You know, really. I couldn't believe that they would still want me on. And at that point, Joey had made his decision. And really, it is the captain's call. And he said, no, no, you know, I, I'm not going to lose anybody. You know, we're going to, we're going to do this. And so I got up on the rail and I, I looked up into the light and I, I remember taking off my, my sailing cap and throwing it in the wind and jumping. And I went down expecting, you know, icy water and I'd forgotten we were in the Gulf Stream. So it was this really beautiful tepid water 
And I went down and I bobbed up. And I swear to you, I felt like I could wait forever. I, I felt so, you know, part of it was that the waiting was over. Mm-hmm. You know, that we had spent 30 hours trying to stay alive, you know, fighting, working, being so scared, you know, and always relying on each other. And and at that point, I realized it was out of my hands. It, I really, I, I just felt like I just couldn't do any more. And I, I realized I'm either going to live or I'm going to die, but I'm going to do one or the other. I'm tired of the not knowing. And when I hit the water, I just felt very calm. I didn't feel worried. I didn't feel scared. All the scared part was behind me, you know. And I came up and I looked up and there they were, you know. And uh, they lowered the basket and I managed to get myself up and they, they cranked me up and they dragged me out. And my friends were collapsed on the floor of the helicopter and I just went and I just fell and collapsed with them. And uh, we started to watch, you know, at that point, just watching. It was kind of this game of uh, uh, like a roulette or something, you know, watching to see who would come up next, you know, like like the lotto, you know, like every time we saw the basket come up, it's like, oh, we won the lotto because there's another one of us, you know. And one after the other. And then finally Joey came up and uh, he had gotten – there are these pins that they use. They're called belaying pins, and they're used to uh, uh, to keep the the lines, you know, the ropes of the ship, to anchor them onto the onto the rail. They're called belaying pins. And so he took a belaying pin uh, as a remembrance, you know, to have something left of Anna Christina. And so he came up. And then we looked out the window and we could see Anna Christina, you know, now there was no one steering her. So she just turned and, uh, and the waves came over and just took the ship down and she disappeared. And, uh, I just remember being in this wet pile of us and just kind of crying and just lying there with my friend. Uh, so the helicopter took us and we landed, you know, after, I don't, you know, I, I have no idea how long it was, to be honest with you. I lost all concept of time. But I realized when we landed, we were still kind of moving back and forth. And that's when I realized we were, we had landed on the aircraft carrier. He hadn't taken us back to land. And so we, mm-hmm. we got down at the aircraft carrier and they checked us out to make sure we were okay. And they took all our wet clothes and they gave us these little paper pajamas and paper robes and paper slippers and that's how we got back onto the helicopters. And, uh, uh, and the other helicopter at that point had found its way to the, uh, to the aircraft carrier. So now we had two. So the, the, the kind of blind copter could follow the, the original copter back to land. So the, they flew us back that way. Uh, and we landed and, uh, I remember everyone like, you know, the Coast Guard does this for a living, but this is when I got the idea of what a what an amazing mission this was because everyone on the base was waiting in the hangar, you know. And when the, air, when the helicopter came in and the crew came out and they brought us out, everyone cheered. And Paul Lang put his hand up and he just said, we got them all, you know. 
And uh, I remember that moment, you know, with him. Uh, they took us to a room. They gave us a phone. And that's when we had to call the bakers. And we, we had to call them and told them that we lost their ship. And so Joey got on the line with Norman. Mary Ann got on the other line with them. And, and, uh, and Joey said to Norman, uh, we're, we're on land. And Norman said, well, that's good. Where's Anna Christina? And Joey said, we're on land. And Norman said, where's Anna Christina? You know, and they had this back and forth several times. And Joey could not bring himself to tell him what had happened, you know. But it sunk in at some point. And, you know, I mean, everybody was crying. We were just wrecked at that point. Uh, and so they drove us. I, I, they have a policy not to let you stay on the on the base. So they just piled us onto a van and they drove us to uh, – to a holiday inn in Elizabeth City, and they just left us there. <laughs> in your paper clothes? In our paper clothes. Oh, no. We went in to the uh, to to the office, and and Joey said to the guy, uh, "We just got rescued," and and the guy said, "Well, do you have money?" And Joey said, "We just got rescued." <laughs> you know, and the guy said, "Well," and Joey said, "Can I talk to your manager?" Uh, and that's when the guy said, okay, we'll give you, so they gave us rooms and, uh, we slept there for a few hours and, uh, then we got up and the, you know, the press was waiting and, and uh, we were just trying to make our way home. Uh, yeah, so that was it. And I, I ended up flying. I had my credit card. So most of the folks I found out later got a rental car and they drove up the coast all the way back to, uh, to New England. Um, uh, eating free all the way because they would go into a, <laughs> a diner or a bar and just tell them because they'd been in all the news mm-hmm. outlets. And they would just tell them who they were and uh, they ate free all the way home. Did your family know that you were caught in this storm? Did they have an understanding of what was going on and just wondering whether or not you were going to survive or? They had no idea. My parents were away. They were actually in Bolivia at the time. So I never told them, uh, I made my way instead of flying back to New York, I made my way back to, uh, to my parents' house. My grandmother opened the door again and I just collapsed. Uh, so my parents didn't find out what had happened until they got back until I was safe. safe what a back. blessing that is. I know. I know. And I'll tell you when I was on the ship there, not for nothing. I was really, there were moments where I just thought of, I thought of them. I thought of, of them finding out that their son had perished at sea, you know, like in the little town in Bolivia, like how long it would take for the word to get to them and, and what that would do to them. Uh, and that's what kept me going. Cause I was so tired. I just felt like if it had just been for me, I don't know if I could have kept pumping, if I could have kept trying, mm-hmm. it made a difference to know that, uh, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to let them down. And after the fact, they had sort of a memorial for the Anna Christina. What was that like going back and meeting with the bakers again? Yeah, for me, it was, um, you know, I made my way to their their home in Western Mass. And I wish I'd gotten there sooner. I, I was home. It got delayed, you know, because 
every all of the crew was there the night before and i think they got to have their time with the bakers they got to have that time together and by the time i got there the next day the larger community of of people you know who loved anna christina was there so it was a 150 people and I was in a daze. I was wandering around, you know, people found out who I was. So of course they wanted me to tell the story. And, you know, again, if it were today, I I think we would say I was in shock or I had PTSD or something because I was in shock, but I didn't know it. I didn't identify it that way. I was just sort of wandering around for weeks. I just wandered from one thing to another, you know, um, and so it was, I was glad to see the bakers. It was, it was odd because I didn't know them well, you know, mm-hmm. um, I got to know them better afterward. We became friends and I, I came to value them, you know, a lot. Uh, but it was a very strange position to be in. I was kind of neither here nor there. I was kind of still an outsider, uh, even though I'd been through this. Well, thing. in in some ways that was probably a blessing just because, that that guilt of letting the ship go down wasn't for you to carry on your shoulders. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, it's sort of, you know, there's uh, there's that, uh, that that thing about if if there were, if you saw someone drowning, would you jump in and save them? Uh, you know, there's a joke as well. I can't swim, so <laughs> <laughs> you know. So it is that kind of thing. Like I was such a such a landlubber, such a greenhorn, you know, such an accidental sailor that uh, I personally didn't feel any guilt at all because, you know, I, I, I was just trying to survive. I was just doing what I was told to try to help. Um, and for me, the fact that we survived was everything, you know. Uh, I, I didn't feel the ship the way other people did. Yeah. Yeah. How did your experience on the Anna Christina alter the course of your life, if at all? Like, did, <laughs> did, did it change you as a person, do you think? Well, it's funny. You know, you know when I told people about this, uh, I say it changed everything and nothing. You know, I didn't, I didn't follow mother Teresa somewhere and change, <laughs> you know, I did, <laughs> I went back to my job, you know, I was working at graveyard shifts at this law firm. I went back to the boring graveyard shift for a while, you know, um, I, I kind of went back to my life and people would ask me and, and people have asked me so many times over the years and I can hear in their voices, you know, <laughs> people are like, it changed your life, didn't it? (laughs) Tell me it did. And I think it's quieter than that. You know, I think it takes longer to appreciate. uh, And I think it's a quieter difference. And I think I would compare it to, uh, I don't know, it's funny. In a way, I would compare it to the pandemic that we've all lived through these last two years. uh, That, there have been times in the pandemic where, where I realize I'm alive, you know, and when I think back to those moments on that deck, in that wind, 
in those waves. I was so scared, but I also, I was so alive. I felt so alive. I didn't know if I would be alive, right? How much longer, but I knew I was alive then. And so for me, it's been a process over the years of all of trying to notice, you know, because, you know, I say in the book, uh, uh, a, a hurricane helps you know you're alive, you know, a hurricane gets your attention. But the truth is, and the, the challenge is to realize I'm completely alive right now talking to you. I'm mm-hmm. completely alive even when I'm bored. You know, I'm completely alive every moment. And I think that's what, that's, it, it was kind of a signpost in my life that it helps me notice that when I forget uh, to notice this moment, I'm like, okay, you know, just think of that moment. And you're no, you're no less alive. I'm no less alive now than I was then. Yeah, it's just so. you're the same person, but your perspective and understanding about being present is changed or has changed. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, it's that and more. It's like I want to be alive. And that's part of, I think, in living through the pandemic. And it's about noticing you're alive and not taking that for granted. Mm-hmm. Having right? that, that gratitude. Absolutely. Even when it's a crappy moment, you know, that you, you're alive then and you've got a chance to, uh, to be alive the next moment and to make it better, you know. And I could have lost that. I could have lost that that night, you know. And, and I notice all that's come after, you know, I've gotten to all the people that I've met since then, all the people that I've come to love. I have a, a niece and nephew who weren't born, you know, they were born a few years later. And I, you know, I dedicate, they're part of my dedication in the book, Nick and Kathleen. Um, the thought that I, that I wouldn't have known them, you know, and that they would have grown up without me is, you know, it's kind of unbearable sometimes. So not taking that for granted too, all that I've gotten to have since then. So, I love that. Very well spoken. After the fact, they made a movie of the perfect storm. And you mentioned that your crew member, Damien had to walk out of the movie, although he had reacted fairly well after the events. Yeah. Like it hit him all at once. It sounds like, did you yourself ever watch the film and how did it affect you? If so? Well, I'll say, about Damien and about some of the other crew members who, you know, they told me afterwards that it didn't feel like a big deal to them. But to me, uh, what happened to Damien, because Damien really like, because I think the, the film came out sort of six, seven years after, you know, he freaked out. And I think that's what he'd been carrying all that time, you know, that he hadn't been able to get over it and had been lying there, you know. For me, my experience was different because I, you know, I'm such a blabbermouth. Like I, I just, I told the story over and over and over. And I think that was kind of the process of, of processing it, you know, of kind of getting over it was, was sharing it with people. Um, and so by the time the movie came along, it's funny, I was working 
I was working at a, at a job, um, uh, and you know, I had told my, my workmates, they were so excited about it <laughs> that they, you know, we, we all left work one day. There were like 12 of us and we went to the movie together and, and, uh, um, I will say, I don't know if you've seen the film, but they, uh, a lot of it was, was, it was the early days of, of com- computer generated stuff, mm-hmm. you know, where they created these hundred foot waves. And, and I mean, cause that, that movie was about a ship that was lost. Like all the, the crew was lost and, you know, and so it's a very tragic story. Um, but when I saw those waves and I think that's what Damien was, was reacting to that got me like that. I felt in my body. Um, I was clutching the armrest at those moments, you know, because it was, they did a good job on that, those parts for sure. Um, but it wasn't as trauma. I think I'd worked through so much of it that it didn't feel traumatic in the same way, you know, tell us about what you've been up to recently, other than obviously writing a book. And maybe a little bit about StoryCorp and your involvement in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Sorry, that was like three questions in one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. What have I been up to? Um, Well, I work as a freelancer. So I do, you know, I I do writing. I do editing. uh, You know, I work on books. Uh, I have to say it was a thrill for me to get to... um, uh, to, to narrate my story because not every author, surprisingly, as an author, you do have to audition because some authors don't read well, you know, they don't bring it to life. So I auditioned for it and they, they loved it. And so I got to, to tell my story in the audiobook. Um, and I really, it was such a great experience, uh, to get to do that. And I've gotten nice feedback from friends who've actually, uh, listened to it. Um, they said they really enjoyed that. So uh, I'm hoping to do more of that. I actually told the guys at the audiobook company that I loved it. And um, if they if they think I would be an appropriate narrator for other books. Uh, and they said, yeah. So they've actually auditioned me for a couple of things. Uh, and they're going to continue to do that. Uh, so hopefully I'll get to do other books as well. Um, what else do I do? Um I don't know. I have this sort of interesting, crazy, I do uh, peer counseling work, uh, which is uh, teaching people listening tools uh, and uh, kind of helping people to um, get the most out of their lives and, and out of what they do and uh, helping them with relationships. And uh, so that's something I do. I teach that. Um I play in a shuffleboard league <laughs> uh, here in New York, which uh, uh, is that the actually the shuffleboard club has become my second home. Uh, the, the owners are these really, it's this really cool couple and they kind of reinvented, uh, you know, cause shuffleboard people think it's like an old people game or a cruise ship game. They've reinvented it in New York. You have to make it hip. So uh, it's like the new hipster hangout uh, to go play this game. And it's a this big bar and stuff. So I spent a lot of my time there. And we actually did the, uh, the book launch uh, at, the, at the club, which was very exciting. Um, and as far as StoryCorps, StoryCorps I did in, uh, let's see, 
2005. So I started StoryCorps, which for folks who don't know, it's a, a, an oral history project uh, that's very cool where people get to interview each other. You interview a loved one and it gets um, uh, uh, stored at the Library of Congress for all time. So that a hundred years from now, you know, your descendants can go down and they can find the story that you told. They can find your interview. So I did that in um, 2005 and 2006. So I actually was just starting my work with StoryCorps as Katrina hit New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And uh, I was part of a team that went down to New Orleans in the in May of 2006, nine months after the hurricane, and we set up our our listening booth there, and we uh, we interviewed people, and we interviewed folks. You know, it was kind of split down the middle. Some people wanted to unburden themselves; they wanted to talk about the hurricane and what had happened to them. And, you know, we had stories of people who had uh, taken shelter in the. Uh, in monasteries with big walls or in the Superdome, you know, these amazing stories. And then there was other people, because we, we didn't have an agenda. We just wanted to be there for them, you know. And so we had a whole set of other people who had been living with Katrina for nine months, and they wanted to talk about anything but Katrina. And so they got to reminisce about growing up in New Orleans and telling family stories and stuff like that. Um, so that was a great, great, great experience. Um, uh, very humbling because it was really my first experience of going down there and, and, you know, it was nine months. I mean, it's how many years later, 15 years later, and there are parts of New Orleans that have never been restored. So nine months later, they were still in the middle of it. And so we, we saw some of the devastation. We got to, you know, both the, the humans, what the humans had been through and a lot of the infrastructure that was damaged and stuff. Uh, so, you know, it was incredible, uh, and, and hard, you know, uh, after what I'd been through as well. So, but I, I, I felt, a a kinship to those people, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely. And that was pretty amazing. And so the, I'll just tell you this one great story. The best story we had was there was a mother and daughter that sat down here in New York. The mother had, had escaped to Houston and the daughter had escaped to New York and they were reunited. And they came to the booth and it was the first time because they were separated in the hurricane. So it was the first time that they were telling their stories to each other of what they had been through. Wow. And when we went to New Orleans, we tracked down the same mom and daughter and we brought them back to, uh, you know, to tell us what their story was, you know, eight months later, nine months later. So we got to have a reunion and I became very good friends with them. So while I was there, the daughter was getting married. She was in her 20s, and they invited me to the wedding. And I got to experience a, you know, a traditional, you know, jazz New Orleans wedding and wow. stuff. So it was very cool. Yeah. So, do you keep in touch with any of the people that were on the Anna Christina with you? I did. You know, right after I kept in touch with uh, kind of the the folks who were newer, like Barbara, Trace, uh, and Langdon. Langdon and I kind of bonded because we were kind of the two odd men out in a way. Mm-hmm. He didn't know anyone either. So I kept in touch with him for a few years. Uh, Langdon actually invited me, I think it was two or three years after uh, 
Hurricane Grace, uh, there was another tall ship going out and they needed people. <laughs> and he was going, so he invited me. And people said, how could you go? I said, I, in a heartbeat, I was there. Uh, so I did, and we sailed, and it wasn't, you know, nothing bad happened. <laughs> That's good. Uh, but it was good to be back out there. You know, once you've been through that experience, uh, they want you on, on ships. Say you're, you're a good luck charm, so people love having people who've survived a storm like that. Yeah, what are the uh, odds that it would happen again? <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then after that, we kind of lost touch, and uh, I didn't talk to them. You know, the research for the book, I tracked down everyone but one. I couldn't find Marty, but everybody else I managed to track down after 30 years. Uh, doing detective work and uh, doing... Uh, uh, the white page searches and making a you know fifty wrong phone calls before I got the right person. <laughs> it took know, a it dedicated effort. Yeah, it was really interesting to track everyone down and uh, everyone. But one, one person didn't want to talk to me, but everybody else sat down with me. They were a big part of my being able to to tell the story the way I I did in the book. So, so tell us where people can find your book. And do you have any place on social media where people can follow you? Uh, yes. Let's see. The book and, uh, you know, as I, uh, I'm hoping you'll be able to post the links, but it, it's on all the, the main booksellers. So definitely Amazon. Um, and, uh, you know, there's all kinds of, of uh, any, any kind of, you know, Barnes and Noble, any bookseller online should have it. Uh, if they want to listen to it, uh, they could get it on Audible. Um, Audible, thank yes. you. Uh, through Amazon. <laughs> that sounds it's on yeah, Audible. It sounds right. <laughs> Facebook is the one place where I I'm still posting about the uh, about the ship and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I, I posted a bunch about the uh, um, about the book, and I've started posting pictures. I've asked people who bought it all over the world to send me a picture of them with the book. And so I'm going to do a series of photographs of people with the book. Uh, thanks so, so much for your time. It's been yeah. really fun to get to know you. Yeah. And thanks once again for sending us a copy of your book. I really enjoyed reading it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being with us today on the Crux True Survival Stories. You can check out Nelson Simone's book at Amazon or wherever you get your books. If you have any comments or stories that you would like to hear, please reach out to us through our email, which is thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. Hope you guys have a great week. And until next time, stay alive.